Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take God's word in hand now and turn to the sixth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter six is our text today. The title of the message, The Gift of Life. This is Sanctive Human Life Sunday in our Southern Baptist Convention. Sanctive Human Life Month, I should say, the month of January. And uh, I want you to hear it from your pastor. Uh, I'm pro-life and our church is pro-life. When we talk about the gift of life today, we're talking about even more than physical life, which that's very precious. But the most precious thing in the world is your soul, as we'll see today. And so our text this morning is just one verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Sometimes when you're on a long hike, and we are on a long hike through the book of Romans, a couple years I suspect, uh, sometimes it's good to sit down and find a good resting spot and reflect on the journey so far and then ponder what lies ahead. And Romans 6.23 is a very natural resting and reflecting point in our verse-by-verse journey through Romans. For one thing, it's a familiar place. It's always good to rest in a familiar spot. If you've ever gone through any sort of formal evangelistic training, it's almost a certainty that you were told to mark this verse in your Bible. Probably you memorized it. Uh, If you were taught the Roman road, as many of us were, which is an attempt to, to share your faith with another person using the book of Romans, you certainly emphasize this verse. Romans 6.23 is really a summary of everything that Paul has communicated thus far in the six chapters using a very economy of words. Summaries are like that. They're, they're good for carrying around a central truth in an easy to communicate way. The Bible is full of summary verses. Sometimes the summary comes at the end of a section of scripture, such as we have here in Romans 6. Sometimes those summary verses begin a section of scripture, and then the rest of the passage fills out what the summary only alluded to. The Bible begins with such a summary verse, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of the chapter tells what God created in each of the six days of creation. Jesus used some reverses. He did so in John chapter 3 when he was having a very long and deep theological discussion with a man named Nicodemus. He summed up everything he had to say with one sentence. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. One of the things that the religious leaders of Jesus' day liked to do is to write long books and give long opinions about nuances of the Old Testament law. And I think people were confused why Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he taught as one having authority. And so uh, they questioned him about the law. And he summarized the law in three verses. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said to them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. So summaries are good, and Paul gives us one in our text today, Romans 6, 23. Let's read it now. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of this, his divine word. 
Now, it begins with the word for. The word for tells us that this verse is not an island unto itself. It is connected, rather, to everything Paul has said previously. Namely, that every person ever born is a servant either to sin or else he's a servant to Christ. Now, earlier in the letter, he has declared every person to be either in Adam, that is still in our sins, or in Christ, justified and free from guilt. And the meaning and implication of those two ways of saying it are the same. A person is either still in their sins and guilty, the wrath of God abides on them, or else they are justified, forgiven, and free. And that means that they then are free from the dominion of the kingdom and control of their sinful, endemic nature. Uh, and so the natural outcome, of course, is of a lifetime of sin is, is death. And the natural outcome of Christ's righteousness imputed to us is life. And so hear the verse again. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What you have here is a clear contrast between a couple of things. Number one, the contrast between wages and gifts, and then a contrast between death and life. What could be clearer? But let's go just a little bit deeper. Now, first, I want you to note that sin's wages are earned. Sin wages are earned. The Greek word translated in your English Bibles as wages is actually a military term. It speaks of the compensation that Roman soldiers receive. It could rightly be translated rations. Roman soldiers received their compensation in a number of ways. Sometimes they were paid in fish. Sometimes they were paid in gold coin. Most of the time, at certain points in the ancient world, they were paid in a very valuable commodity at the time, and that is salt. Now, we don't think of salt as very valuable. We can go to the store and buy five pounds of it for not much money. We use it for everything. But in those days, salt was hard to come by. It was rare, and that made it exceedingly valuable. And so many times, soldiers were paid in salt. That's where we get the English expression that someone is worth their salt, or they're not worth their salt. It's where we get the English word salary, comes from the derivative of the word salt. So their wages were paid regularly. That is in regular increments. Most of you are paid weekly or bi-weekly or monthly. They were as well. But what they were really working for is at the end of their career as a soldier, if they served faithfully and with valor, they could expect to receive a share of the spoils of war. That is, when they served under a general and they had campaigns and they conquered territories, if they served well, at the end of that campaign or at the end of their service, they were granted land, farms, livestock, gifts in kind. And I think Paul had these in mind, both of them, both their regular rations and their end of service retirement, when he speaks that the wages of sin is death. And here's what I mean. Death is literally the wage of Adam's sin, isn't it? I'm talking about physical death, the first death, the Bible calls it. Remember when God created the world, he created his highest creation, man, and placed him in a perfect environment. We call it the Garden of Eden. Uh, perfect in every way, suited just for him, and he was to have dominion over it. And God gave man one prohibition. He was not to eat of a particular tree that was in the midst of the garden. And God warned man that if he ate of it, he would surely what? Die. And of course, man did in fact eat of that tree and he died. Adam and Eve no longer walked this world. Now God was gracious to give them hundreds more years of life, but they were cast out of the garden. 
But the point is that in Genesis chapter 3, the curse of death passed over not only Adam and Eve, but on all of humanity. That is, every one of us who are descendants of Adam and Eve are born with a death sentence. The Bible says in Hebrews that it's appointed to every man once to die and then to be judged by God. And so death was the cause of that. Before, uh, excuse me, sin was the cause of death. Before sin entered the world, there was no death. And so what do we see? We see that this is God's fixed disposition. It is unchanging. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says, The wrath of God abides against all unrighteousness. That is, not only by virtue of being connected to Adam through our humanity is death upon us, but by virtue of the fact that we sin in these bodies of death. What I mean by that is death is sometimes realized by the natural consequences of our own sin or the sin of others. Now don't hear me saying every time someone gets sick or gets cancer, it's because of some sin they did. That was the misunderstanding that many had in Jesus' day. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither, but that God would be glorified. But we have to admit also that uh, we have seen anecdotal evidence and all of us have known people who abused their bodies sinfully through drug and alcohol addiction that from a human perspective hastened their own death. Some people die in the process of breaking the law, driving recklessly or speeding. We hear a lot about the pandemic in our culture today, but there is another pandemic, worldwide outbreak that we hear almost nothing about of sexually transmitted diseases. And it is rampant all over the world and in this particular area. People die from those things. People die because of the sins of others through murder, violent acts, and abortion. But Paul here is not simply speaking of physical death. He is speaking of being dead to God. He's speaking of spiritual death. Now, sometimes when someone is sleeping very soundly, we might describe them as dead to the world. Well, before God grants a person new life through Christ, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, we can rightly say of that person that they are dead to God. We were all dead to God before we were born again. Paul described our condition as dead in trespasses and sins. He later on describes a person controlled by sin as dead while they live. They give the appearance of life. They're sitting up and taking nourishment. They might be putting one foot in front of the other. Their lungs are moving up and down in their chest. But spiritually, they're dead while they live. They're dead to God. But ultimately, what Paul is talking about is not physical death and not even spiritual death on earth. He's speaking of the final death, the coming wrath of God Hell. The final wage of sin is hell. It's what we get at the end of our life for a lifetime of rebellion against God. Just as a Roman soldier expected to receive payment for a lifetime of service, we can expect eternity in hell because of our sin. Sin is the spoil of a life devoted to unrighteousness. There's something to note about the wages of sin, though. Not only are they earned, they are just. Now, there might be someone who just heard that last sentence that I said about spending eternity in hell, and they say, that's not fair. That's not just. I, I am amazed just in recent years how free people in our culture are to accuse God of injustice. 
are being unfair. You hear it all the time. We should be very careful about anything we say about God, especially if it's not true. We've been studying the book of 1 Timothy here on Wednesday nights, and we saw last Wednesday evening that the Apostle Paul advocated in Roman culture for fair treatment of slaves. And the Bible in many places, including the words of the Lord Jesus, prohibit the withholding of earned wages to hired laborers. And I, I say that to say this. If God withheld the wages of sin, which is death, he would be violating his own declared law. In other words, if God failed to punish every sin ever committed, he would then be unjust. And we know God is not unjust, which means that he must and will punish every sin. As I've often said here, this is one of the many differences between God and we humans. God hates and punishes all sins. We are biased. We allow certain people to get by with things other people we don't allow to get by with. And the person we're most biased towards is ourself. <laughs> we give ourselves a lot of wiggle room and leash when it comes to sin, but other people we seem to judge very harshly and quickly. God's not like that. God is even-handed. He's no respecter of person. He is unbiased. He knows all, and he hates all sin all the time. Look back just a few pages in your Bible, back in verse 1, of chapter 1, verse 18, rather. Romans 1, 18. You remember, the first 17 verses are the introduction. Paul is introducing himself to the church at Rome. He's saying, I'd like to be there in person. It's not possible, but I have some important things to say to you. And beginning in verse 18, he lays into humanity. And he lays us all bare as guilty and sinful towards a holy God and worthy of wrath. And he does that all the way through chapter 3. But he begins it with this verse, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much ungodliness? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's talking about in the here and now. God's fixed position towards your sin is anger, but he's merciful and gracious, and he gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent. But one day, when we die, or he comes again, that opportunity window is going to shut tight, and then he must punish sin eternally. And the scripture says he will do this, and he must do this in agreement with his own nature. This is his fixed disposition. He must punish sin. You say, wait a second, pastor. You also teach that there is grace with God. And grace by definition is getting something good that you don't deserve. That's true. God is not only full of grace, he's full of mercy. If grace is getting something good that you have not earned and you do not deserve, the other side of that is mercy, which is God's withholding from you what you have surely earned, which is his wrath. But the point is the same in either case. Sin must be dealt with. Its wage must be paid or else God is not God. And friends, it was paid and it will be paid throughout all eternity. Hear, hear this very clearly. Every person in this room, every person ever born, either every sin you have ever committed or will commit has been punished through Christ's substitutionary death on the cross or else you will receive the just wages of those sin in hell for all of eternity. That's the only two options. Either Christ takes your punishment at the cross, 
or you pay for your own sins for all of eternity in hell. And my unashamed and heartfelt plea to every human being on the earth is receive the gift of eternal life. That's the gospel message. That's what evangelism is. It's pleading with a lost and dying world to receive this free gift rather than facing the wrath of God. Something else I'd like you to see about this gift. It is of ultimate value. This gift is of ultimate value. And what I mean by that, it's worth giving up everything for. It's worth making a clean break with sin and serving Christ alone. Jesus said this many times in many places through his earthly ministry. You know that Jesus used parables, which are metaphors, short stories that convey a deep spiritual meaning through things that people can relate to. And in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, he tells two very short parables back to back, and their meaning is identical. He says in verse 44 of Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Here's a man, he's being paid to plow someone else's field for him. And likely his plow hits something hard just beneath the surface. And he investigates, digs a hole, and he found what he hit with his plow was a treasure chest. And he opens it up and it's the greatest treasure that he could imagine. He puts it back under the dirt. He goes home immediately. He sells everything he has of any value. And he goes to the landowner and he buys the land. And now everything in the field is his. He says the gospel is like that, the kingdom of God. Once you find it, you're willing to part with everything else that you thought was valuable before in the pursuit of it. And then in case we missed the point, he tells another parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. In a similar way, here's a guy that spends his life buying and selling things, traveling the world. And he comes across one item, a pearl, and it's so exquisite and perfect, he recognizes in that pearl there's more value than everything else in his catalog. And he sells everything in his catalog, all of his wares, and he purchases this pearl and he's happy about it because he knows he's made a great deal. Now don't get lost in the parable. This parable is not about the ethics of whether or not that plowman should have told the farmer there was a treasure in his field. And, and this parable is, is not about capitalism, as I've heard someone say about the, the business owner. The point of both of those parables is the same, is that knowing that when you die, you're going to spend eternity in heaven is more valuable than anything this world could have. And the Bible says says it like this in Mark 8, 36. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And I take that very literally. What if you owned a clear title deed to every piece of real estate on planet Earth and you died and spent eternity in hell? It would be worth nothing to you. In fact, it would be worth less than nothing because it was what kept you from seeing your need of the Savior. And let's talk about the value of God's gift, why it's so valuable. For one, its, valuable, its value rather is to be seen in its price tag. Now, some things have a high price tag that don't have a lot of value in it, but some things are truly valuable and 
the price tag is affixed accordingly. I found that out 18 years ago when I was searching for an engagement ring for my then girlfriend. And I was a seminary intern here then, and uh, I didn't have a lot of money. Uh, that's probably the understatement of the world. Uh, so I decided I was ready to get married, and I was not willing to wait any longer. And even though I didn't have much money, I went to South Lake, Texas, to the first jewelry store I could find. Now, let me give you young men who are seminary students some advice. If you're looking for an engagement ring, don't go to South Lake, Texas, <laughs> if you're on a seminary intern's budget. And so the proprietor of the jewelry store came out and greeted me. We had a brief conversation. He asked what I did for a living. And he said very nicely and humbly, he said, uh, this is probably not the jewelry store for you. <laughs> and looking at the price tag, I said, you're exactly right. And he very graciously pointed me to a, another jewelry store that was more in my price range. And I bought a little ring, gave it to my wife. And we've been married 18 years. So uh, you don't have to have a big diamond ring. The, the point is this. Um, those diamonds that he was selling were exquisite and their value was reflected in the price tag. The value of our salvation is also reflected in the price tag. I uh, do a lot of funerals, as you know, and last week I had yet another funeral at the National Cemetery in Dallas, and as I was leaving, it was about 9 o'clock in the morning, the sun was coming up, and I could see thousands of grave markers before me. And I thought to myself, freedom is not free, is it? And even though we are set free by the gospel, by the blood of Jesus, it cost him everything. The price tag of our redemption is the death of Jesus. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We're reminded of the value of our salvation every time when we look to the cross. But there's also value to be found in God's gift because of who the giver is. You're probably like me. You have certain things, material possessions in your home whose value is ascribed by who gave you the gift. In other words, if a stranger on the street or a casual acquaintance gave you that item, it would have little value to you. You'd probably thrown it out years ago. But because your dear great-grandmother left it for you in her will, it has great value to you. Well, the giver of this gift is the creator of the universe. And when the creator of the universe gives you a gift, it has value because of who the giver is. And then finally, a gift has value because of its thoughtfulness. Now, what we teach here and what I believe is that when Jesus died on the cross, what he did was a literal substitutionary atonement. A literal atonement means he paid for the sins of all who would be saved for all of eternity. Now, some teach that what Jesus did is he made it a potential that you could be saved or could be covered one day by, our sin, by his blood. But I believe that he literally atoned for our sins on the cross. And what he was thinking about on the cross was your name and my name. It was not some vague offer to humanity. He knew his own before the foundation of the earth, all who would believe. You have things again in your possession that are valuable to you because of the thoughtfulness of the giver.
Now, I received a gift a few months ago that uh, is very valuable to me. It was given to me by a friend who's a denominational leader. It's a handwritten page of notes from the hand of Charles Spurgeon. Came from his personal archives, and what Spurgeon would do is he would uh, write his notes, and then in other colors he would write corrections all the way up to the time that he preached. And I have his handwriting personally, and I keep it in a safe place, and one day I'm going to have it framed, Lord willing. But the thoughtfulness of that giver, knowing that I admired Charles Spurgeon, and he picked out that page, and he gave it specifically to me, the, the, the thought and this amazing truth that when Christ was on the cross, he was thinking of his own, makes it incredibly valuable. Now, finally, I would say about this verse, Romans 3.23, this gift, of course, is of ultimate value. It's worth giving everything up for. Its value is in its price tag, the blood of Christ. Its value is in who the giver is, the Lord himself, and its thoughtfulness that he knew us individually when he died. And this incredible gift, though, can only be appropriated by faith. Now, in the Bible, we see some people who try to appropriate salvation in other ways. We see a man who tried to buy the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, your silver perish with you. Peter understood that the only way for a person to appropriate salvation, this precious gift of God, is through faith. Now, sometimes if you still have a landline in your home, you'll get a call about 8.30 at night from a number you don't recognize. And after you say hello, after a three-second pause, someone has say, hello, friend. Good for you. You've already won. All you have to do to claim your cash prize is to give us your bank number over the phone. Please don't give your bank number over the phone. What this camera is trying to do is to say you have a gift, but to appropriate that gift, you've got to do something for me. A lot of people have that idea about the gospel. What do I have to do? This is what the Philippian jailer said, remember? When God rattled this jail cell there in Philippi, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, don't have to do anything. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and you'll be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not grace plus anything. Now note the wording here. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, that is a redundancy done purposely. We said last week that Paul was well educated and he used literary devices and he uses a redundancy for emphasis. The word free and the word gift mean the same thing. And so it's a redundancy to call a gift free or to say something's free that's a gift. But he does it so that we won't miss the point. That's nothing that we do. And he goes on to say it's a free gift of God. It's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now some of your translations probably say through Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's only a small nuance of difference, but it's a significant nuance. Because, yes, it's true that through what Christ did, salvation is made available to us. But the way that that happens through faith is that we are connected to Christ's righteousness by faith. It's what we've been talking about, the mystical union. That because we are in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for us. 
that because we're in Christ, we share in his death, burial, and resurrection. He's saying it again in a, in a little different way. The wages of sin is death, but contrast that with this glorious truth. The free gift of God is eternal life by being connected to his righteousness. And how are we connected to his righteousness? Is it making up for all of our sins? Is it tying our shoelaces tighter and determining to do better? Is it gritting our teeth and saying, this is the year? No. It's coming to him on his terms, which we always say here is empty pockets and empty hands. You have to come to Christ to receive this gift with an empty hand. Nothing to the cross I bring, only to Christ I cling. This is the gospel. We are connected to his righteousness by faith alone. Well, let's summarize. I said we need some summaries. I'm going to summarize this sermon. Don't ever forget, no matter how long you've been a Christian, that you and I have earned our wages. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin results in death. If it were not so, God would be unjust. Therefore, he has to punish sin. So, so what is sin? Let's define it again. Sin is any trespass of God's commandments, either by action or by omission. We're all guilty by virtue of being connected to Adam and his guilt, but we're also guilty of personal sins as soon as we are morally capable. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Secondly, not only have we earned our wages, if we receive what we deserve, our wages, we would surely perish in this life and eternally. That eternal aspect of death is what Jesus was speaking of in John 3.16 to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. That is eternally perish. Suffer the lifelong wage of a life of sin, which is hell. Now, he's not saying we can escape death in this life. Because we are still a child of Adam, it's appointed to us to die just like every other person, unless the Lord comes back before then. I pray he does. But we don't have to fear death. That's what Matt said when we started this service from the Heidelberg Catechism. Because we know and we have assurance that we are in Christ and God the Father is forever going to be pleased with him. And because we know that our eternal citizenship has been transferred from the kingdom of sin and death and hell to the kingdom of light and of righteousness and of God's dear son, we don't have to fear death or dying. I was reminded of this just yesterday. I called a friend of mine who's a member of this church who's 94 years old. And she had been taken to the hospital a day or two earlier and was inquiring of how she was doing. And, and she was telling me that she was getting better and then she started crying. But she was crying not because she was in the hospital separated from her family. She was crying because she said, Keith, I really thought this was my time to go to heaven. And when it wasn't, she was disappointed. You know, that's how all of us ought to live our lives. Scripture says that our minds ought to be in heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, we shouldn't have a death wish. But when we know our race is one, hell uh, is not for the believer. And because of that, we don't have to fear it. That is death. You see, death in, 
is no longer the entrance door to pain and separation. It's the portal through which we enter eternal bliss. And so there's some final things I'd like to say. If you're here today and you're still in your sins, you've never received this free gift of grace, I implore you, do not demand justice from God. You see, justice would be that we would spend eternity in hell. Your only pr prayer, your only plea is God be merciful to me, the sinner. God, withhold the wages that I justly deserve. And the only way he can do that is if you receive his free gift of grace, which was purchased by the blood, the death of his dear son. How do you do that? By faith alone. By belief. In other words, by asking him to. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll be rescued from the wages of sin. And then for the rest of your life, you can be obedient to God out of gratitude. When I think about my salvation, when I think about what I deserve, when I think about what I receive in place of what I deserve, when I think about heaven and home, it motivates me to be obedient to the Lord out of thankfulness, out of a grateful heart. This summer, Lord willing, we're going to spend 10 weeks talking about what the Bible says about heaven. I don't know about you, I need to hear about heaven. Because uh, if there's one thing <laughs> I think we can all agree on, having gone through the past two years, there is a heaven and this ain't it. <laughs> so we need to hear about heaven. And every time I read a book about heaven, or I read a scripture, or I write a sermon about heaven, it reminds me of what Christ has done. He is that pearl of great price that's more valuable than anything else in the universe. That once we found it, once we know that it's available to us, the only logical thing to do is to make a clear break with everything else we thought was valuable before that. And to run to him and to acquire that pearl of great price, not through a reformation of habits, not through determining to do better in the future, but coming to him and receiving it as a pauper does, the gift that only he can bestow. I pray that every one of you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've received that free gift. If you have not, you can. And you can today, simply by asking him to forgive your sins, repenting of those sins, and allowing him to be the Lord of your life. If you're a Christian here today, thank the Lord for your salvation. Dwell upon it meditate upon it daily and serve him for the rest of your life because of gratitude. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And it's really a truth, two grateful words, that we all have earned the wages of sin, which is death. You would be within your rights to strike me dead every time I sinned you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger but Lord you have uh, made a statement and all your statements are true that one day you will punish all sin eternally 
Father, if, if I got what I deserved, I'd spend eternity in hell. I'd, I'd die right now and I'd go straight to hell if I got what I deserved. Lord, I'm so grateful that you have not treated me as my sins deserved. But rather, you love me so much that uh, you offered me the greatest gift imaginable. It's valuable, I know, because of how much it cost you, the death of your own son. It's valuable because you give it and you're God. It's valuable because Christ was thinking of me and every other person who would ever believe on the cross. And Father, I would pray if there's even one in the sound of my voice who knows you not, that today would be the day that they would bow their knee to your Lordship or that they would give up on everything heretofore they thought was of value and see it as Paul did, as filthy rags, as worthless and unclean and that they would acquire that pearl of great price, the kingdom of God, not through money, not through effort, not through works, but by simple faith. Would you do this for your own namesake and for your own glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.